Hey, welcome to the Digital Backpack. In this episode, we talk to Lucy and Phil from the learning and engagement team at the Henry Ford. We talked about the potential in all of us to innovate and how they're working with teachers, students, and beyond to unleash that power. And at the very end of this episode, you'll hear a special preview of a new podcast from Michigan Virtual called Bright. All right, let's go. here with Lucy Howell and Phil Grum from the Henry Ford, specifically from the learning and engagement team at the Henry Ford. And we are incredibly excited to hear more about the cultural institution in Metro Detroit and about the work of their team. So I just want to welcome Lucy and Phil. Thank you guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So if you could maybe give us a little bit of background about the work of the Henry Ford in general, um, and then try to think about some ways that we can uh, latch on to, to your work and what you do with the learning and engagement team and, and your roles in supporting that work. Um, and maybe we could start with Lucy there. Yeah, so um, when you think about the Henry Ford, it's a, uh, a venue destination uh, in it, its main idea. And we have kind of four different venues. So we have... Um, the Museum of American Innovation, we have the Greenfield Village, uh, the Ford Rouge Factory Tour, and actually the Benson Ford Research Center is is part of our uh, venues as well. And so it really is this campus uh, that is focused on innovation, ingenuity, and resourcefulness. And we have these amazing um, places, so buildings that are from history, that are on site that people can visit. And these are uh, these fantastic objects that were collected, um, starting with Henry Ford himself, but over time, that really speak to American humans' ability to innovate, be resourceful, and be ingenious. And it's a really exciting place to walk around and be part of. You can kind of, you get a real feel for what people have done in the past and what you can do yourself right now and in the future. Phil, You've been here longer, so you should you should add more. Well, I think it's it's pretty interesting to work at a place that that was founded on this idea of of learning by doing. Uh, that was kind of Henry Ford's favorite educational principle and philosophy. And so, the museum at that time when he founded it, um, it was dedicated in 1929. It, it was really a place to tell the story of technological process. And a lot of times, when we think of innovation, we think of all of the positive things, but we also Uh, have some stories that talk about the unintended consequences of technological progress and innovation. And then the village was really this place at that time where you could go to to see these things being made, but also then being used in a practical sense. So it it really kind of created this holistic thing. And I I think we're trying to to this day to to carry that forward as much as we possibly can. at a time where innovation is continuing to to change the world around us, uh, and, it, and it always kind of will. And, and with the technology that's come up in, in the past decade, 20 years, uh, that, that story continues to live on. So it's, it's a fun place to work at. I think Lucy would agree with me. We learn something new every day. My, uh, my family always told me, you know, that's, that's when you know you're doing something that, that you love is when you're continuing to learn and being kind of educators ourselves. That's, that's such a great 
great environment to be in. I do agree with that. So Phil has been part of the community for 11 years, I think it is. Is that right? Yeah, it'll be, it will actually be 10, 10 in May of 2021. So I'm coming up on that decade. Um, and what I found just so wonderful about joining the team is there's just such a wealth of knowledge. You don't just learn from the things and you don't le just learn from the, the buildings and the places and the stories. You, you learn from all the people that are there who just know these stories so well and really think about how they apply them to their own work and to their own lives. That's been kind of my biggest journey. I've been part of the organization for four years and it's really kind of changed the way that I think about my work, my life, and who knew walking past the Allegheny steam train every day would do something like that. But it really does. It's, um, it's kind of magic, to be honest. You know, listeners won't see this, but both of you are virtually standing in front of parts of, uh, of your workplace. Phil, what are, you, what are you standing in front of, if you could describe to folks that can't see? Yeah, sure. The artifact that I'm right in front of is, is actually pretty easy to, to describe visually. So I'm sitting in front, well, I'm sitting, air quotes, sitting in front of the Damaxian house, which was created by our Buckminster Fuller. He's probably most famous for his designs around the geodesic dome. Uh, but the Damaxian house was an idea that he had to really create sustainable living with available materials um, and sort of this mobile living because it's made out of really light materials that could be portable, that you could construct yourself. Sort of putting Dymaxine houses together in kits and sending them out, it was actually, it never took off. It was actually a failure, which is pretty interesting to be sitting in, in a museum of American innovation. Yes, we do talk about uh, learning from failure and, and those things. And the best way that I can describe the Dymaxine house is if you've ever seen a big silver Hershey kiss that's pretty much the shape of what this house looks like. Uh, and it's got windows on the outside. And, and actually, if you come to the museum, uh, you can walk through it. Uh, right now, it actually might be closed due to COVID and the, uh, the different restrictions that we have. However, it's an artifact that you can normally enter into, which is pretty, pretty immersive in and of itself. I so you described it that way. I always think of it as an umbrella with sides and a bottom and then stuff it because it's actually it, it works on the same kind of physics as an umbrella hold up maybe that's the science person geek in me that's the science in you okay. for sure okay uh, so i'm actually the, the the background i've got right now is um sunset looking from greenville village towards the clock tower which is sort of at the center of the the museum itself actually it was a picture that one of our one of the team took um, when they were out doing holiday nights just last week so it's it's a current favorite but i will i'm going to switch and then and tell you about the other background i use a lot is this one which is uh it's right in the plaza the day before we shut down we actually unveiled a brand new kind of area of the plaza called the intersection of innovation. And it really pulls on a lot of the learning and engagement work and other work that we've done over the last number of years. And we finally got this space in the museum to really talk about innovation and how all of the stories in the museum and across the venues are connected and talk to one another. And I really, love this picture because uh, there's actually an interactive table at the very back of this space where um, you can actually pull stories um, from the archives from the digital collection and um, see the connections and uh, the connections have been made through our curation team 
um, but we're also playing with some machine learning pieces to that of that to see if um, a machine learning could actually make different connections based on how people interact with it. Um, it's slightly devastating because obviously with COVID-19, no touch screen interaction for a while, um, but this is a, a real place. We're really looking forward to the opportunity to watching, um, especially young learners, go into that space and interact with these um, uh, the stories in this sort of digital environment right in the middle of the museum. Um, so that's probably one of my favorites for right right now. But I will tell you, and Phil probably would agree, your favorites change. Um, the stories that you love kind of change over time just because that it's, it is a really organic place. You're constantly moving and changing and engaging with it in different ways. And, and I think it's important to say too that, that there's a level of, uh, to Lucy's point, and we're our curatorial team are very much active. So our institution hasn't stopped collecting artifacts. We still continue to collect new things weekly, day, almost daily. Uh, we, we bring in a lot of things. And so there's always a new story to tell, maybe a new object being brought in that might actually shift how we're telling a story that's been on the floor for years. It's really fun to work at a place where I think people think that a museum is a pretty static, stuck-in-time place. Um, however, I, I can very much say that that the Henry Ford is is the complete opposite of that. We're evolving constantly, and that fits in really well if if we're going to hold ourselves up as this place for innovation, ingenuity, and resourcefulness. We try to practice a little bit of what we preach and continue to find those stories that are relevant uh, for our visitors that come to us. Yep, I, I know that the shocking statistic that kind of hit me was we have twenty six million um, objects and artifacts in the collection. They just 26 million of them. So you see, um, you only see five or six percent of the collection out when you're in the venue. I, I mean, I think that kind of hit me in my gut and it became even more obvious. Our digital uh, officer pointed out we're digitizing some of that collection. We, we just hit the 100,000 objects and artifacts um, to be digitized in the last few weeks. If we go at that rate, at the rate, Take us. I think it's like twelve hundred years to actually digitize the entire thing. That sort of puts it into perspective of just how deep these stories go and how rich that collection is. And um, and and you, when you're surrounded by people who know those stories and talk about them and make the connections, you you can't help but just be drawn into them. And it's been pretty incredible to see that shift in our organization too over time. So Lucy had mentioned that I've been at the Henry Ford for about 10 years now. When I first started, I want to say uh, that's that's really when we began a lot of our digitization efforts and really thinking about how how these stories don't just live in the bricks and mortars venues of, of our place, but how they can push beyond those boundaries. And so when I started in 2011, I want to say there was something between 150, 200, 200 artifacts digitized. And so to go from that to now over 100,000 artifacts digitized, our library and portfolio for, for what Lucy and I do as we connect with educators, we can now bring, we can package those stories and we can push them outside of our walls. And that's been a huge game changer, not just in a year where a pandemic has, has caused people to, to turn to virtual learning, but this is something that we've been ramping up. Um, over all the time that I've been here to be able to do this, to be able to really reach reach nationally, reach potentially globally. 
I think that speaks to we we work on um, three basic learning principles um, uh, and this is organization wide this isn't just learning and engagement we probably drive um, those learning principles but they are learning that's powered by perspective so that means the learning that we offer always comes from our collection always comes from the stories that we um, have to share we talk about learning applied to the real world so that really speaks to that philosophy of learning by doing um, how can you activate the, the learning of history of the past in real world problems today? And uh, whether that's you as a kid in a classroom coming up with an invention, or if that's uh, you as one of you know the team here at the Henry Ford thinking through a problem that you're solving, or if that's you're in a you know uh, a boardroom and you've got frankly you've got COVID nineteen has hit you, and how are you going to problem solve? to that. So that's that kind of applied to the real world. And the final one is learning shared equitably by all. So we really value creating access to the stories that we have. And I think one of the things we realized is with this digitized, um, digital world that we exist in, we could push these stories beyond our boundaries. We really could bring those stories to students. And that's why we're starting. But, but all people and create the same inspiration that we have when a guest comes to the museum and feels the power of those stories. Could we actually activate that um, in classrooms with teachers, with students? Could we activate that um, in other places beyond our borders? Um, and what was really amazing was about three years ago, Harvard and Stanford, their Opportunity Insights Group actually gave us the why, like the why to do that. Um, they did some research it was highlighted in an article called Lost Einsteins, and it really spoke to um, the ability of humans to innovate and, uh, and then the opportunity to showcase that innovation. And what the research very simply came out with is everybody has the ability to innovate in, in them. Human beings are just innately innovative, especially in difficult situations. Um, but the opportunity to showcase that is is clustered in various places, especially uh, kind of within the US. So the question then becomes, how do you activate, how do you reduce that innovation gap, how do, that opportunity to innovate um, gap? And we think some of our stories can be part of that movement to make that change. We can actually take those stories, show what people have done in the past, and then challenge people to think about what can they do right now and in the future um, and use examples and use a framework to help people think through that problem solving, um, which is really kind of cool, right? The, the past feeds the future. How did I do, Phil? Was that, does that kind of capture how we work and think? Yeah, absolutely. That framework that you're saying, I mean, it's this idea that that these stories can really act as, as coaches and mentors, because part of that research also says that the, one of the ways that we can help with this, this opportunity gap is actually exposing people to these. And so for us as an organization, if you think about all the things that we've talk, talked about up to this point, we are really trying to get those stories of innovators, inventors, entrepreneurs out into the world so that so that young people, really anyone, but but absolutely young people too, are exposed to these stories and they can begin to see themselves as as innovators, inventors, and entrepreneurs. And 
where Lucy changed her background to and uh, within this intersection of innovation that we call now in the museum, on the walls of that is, is our framework. So we actually took our stories and over the 90 years that we've been, 90 plus years that we've been curating our artifacts and stories, uh, added into to the expertise that we've brought to the table from an educational standpoint, we've actually developed uh, a framework, an innovation learning framework that we call Model I. Uh, and the cool thing about this framework is it, it has two separate frames to it. So on one side of the framework, there are the habits, habits of an innovator. Uh, and so we talk about six habits. That's not saying that there are only six habits that innovators have. There's, there's more beyond that. But as it relates to our stories, these are the six habits that come up time and time again. I already, I kind of already referenced one, learning from failure, um, staying curious, collaborate, uh, be empathetic, take risks, challenge the rules. Uh, innovators are always pushing, using their habits to push through, uh, whether it's barriers, whether it's brainstorming, iterating, uh, they use their habits in different ways on the road to problem identification, problem solving, design. Uh, and so that's one side, uh, one side of our framework. One last thing I want to say about habits too, is it's, it's appropriately named uh, because we believe that you can actually practice these things. You don't necessarily have to be born with, with the stay curious gene. Y you can do these more. Uh, and, and Justin's holding up some, some of the, the magnets that uh, he's gotten from us that, that are some of the habits, which, uh, which hopefully we can share uh, out after this too. And we'll, we'll tell you how to do that, how you can access some of this stuff. But then on the other side of the framework are the actions. And so we, we developed the actions of innovation, which are Five actions. Uh, we call them actions because in our in our research, it, from our perspective, innovation is an, can be an incredibly messy process, uh, and it is not a recipe. It's not you you accomplish step one, move on to step two, uh, then move on to step three. Uh, it's very much iterative. Uh, it it can it can start and end at different places. Uh, you need to be a flexible and adaptable as an innovator, and so we wanted those actions to reflect that. Uh, and the actions go from uncovering problems, so uncover, define to be a good problem solver, to be a good innovator. You need to be able to to appropriately define the problem you're actually trying to solve. Uh, you also need to design that, uh, which is very much an iterative process and optimizing. Uh, so designing and optimizing. And then the last action is implement. Uh, so when you're, when, when you've designed and optimized that product, when do you take it to a market? When do you put it out in the world? Um, and you start thinking about not just the users of it, but the consumers, the customers, the people who might, uh, consume this idea or, or this thing that you've created. And that's, that's our Model I framework. Yeah. And, and those two frames actually come together. And now we can take the stories from our collection and we can talk about innovation journeys. And so the actions and habits come together at different points in people's innovation journeys to really provide some context for, for anyone who comes in contact with these, uh, to, to see that the people in the past that we hold up as these heroes, sometimes these legends of, of our past, we're actually doing things that we can do ourselves. In fact, these are things that we have, we might do every single day, but we're just not aware of it. If you think about what that framework is doing, it's, it's creating language. It's creating a common language so that we can talk innovation with anyone, no matter where they're from. If they're an engineer, a designer, uh, a doctor, uh, it doesn't really matter. Everybody can be innovative in their own space. And so that's, that's why we wanted to create our own framework, not just from our stories, but 
but to create this interdisciplinary understanding about what innovation is and to show that anybody can really do these things. It just takes practice. Just piggybacking off that, just to give you some background, I'm most definitely a STEM educator. That's my background. I studied engineering, was a science teacher, um, have spent 15 years in STEM um, educational outreach. And so when I came to the Henry Ford, I very much came with a, a very sort of STEM and technical and science kind of lens um, to, to my work. And working with Phil, I feel your background and correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of within that more social studies, history-based, um, history education kind of space. And I think what we've learned together is that um, when you look at the stories here at, at Henry Ford, you can't unpack the stories of technical innovation from the stories of social change. They really sit at that intersection of STEM and the humanities, which means that they're powerful, like they're not discipline specific. They actually bridge across across those disciplines. When you think about what work looks like nowadays, it, it doesn't exist in these um, discipline boxes, right? So the future for us, for young people isn't to, to work and live in these discipline-specific boxes. It's, it's to actually combine your knowledge across those disciplines and be able to activate it to, to solve problems in whatever workplace. You might be an individual entrepreneur or you might be an entrepreneur in, in a... Um, business um you may not go into that at all you may just be an artist you know you can all things are possible but this is one tool that applies to all of them it's a set of stories that apply in all of those spaces and for us that's really really powerful we we don't i don't think we see ourselves in a single or even two-dimensional space i think we when it comes to learning we really see that um learning is multi-dimensional and the stories that we have to offer and the framework that we use really help people access into that and remind people what it is to be human and to learn and to grow and develop develop and now i got very philosophical in all of there and I, i'm aware of that yeah and just to add one last thing i our journey hasn't been just shaped by lucy and i and and our sort of different discipline perspectives of humanities and, and STEM, right? It's also been informed by the educators that, that I've worked with for my whole career. And so one of the reasons why this, this idea of innovation works for, for us as it relates to our strategy is because what we've heard from educators over time is that um, there was a point in time where we actually, instead of the actions, had used the design thinking process and applied that to our collections. However, what we what we heard from educators was, you know, not all of my students identify as a designer. They're not interested in that area. Um, they want to be uh, some something else. Maybe they want to be an engineer. Maybe they want to be a lawyer or anything. Right. Maybe they want to work at a museum even. Uh, and so when we heard uh, from our educators that we, we partnered with and who, who kind of helped us develop this strategy and the things we have to offer, we wanted to make it as open and inclusive as possible so that no matter where you're coming from, you can see yourself in it. Um, and we take that very seriously because to Lucy's point, we're not just bringing in STEM educators. We're not just bringing in social studies educators. We're, we're bringing in people from all these different disciplines. And so as an exercise in innovation, how do you solve to multiple criteria multiple needs uh, 
it, it's it's not a it's not a simple thing. It can be a complicated answer. Um, but I think we've found a way to do that with not only with this framework that talks across disciplines, but in working with those teachers themselves, and they've begun to see, like make those connections and help us make those connections for us too, so that we see them very much as partners along our journey. That we wouldn't be where we are with without some of those first adopters and those educators that we began to work with. And the, and we also have a really cool team that we work with too, who bring some of that lens as well. So. It isn't just Phil and I kind of behind the scenes. Um, we've got some really amazing people on the L&E team who come from all different, you know, one of uh, some of the team members come from the business lens, some from the art area, some from English language arts. Um, and I think that really, that really helps. But to Phil's point, it, it also doesn't make it easy. Um, we're, we're often solving to some really complex needs. And that means it gets messy, but that just means that we're on our own innovation journey, just like the stories that we we share. So, you know, we just hold ourselves yep. to that and we learn by doing, right? Uh, and figure it out. You know, the way that you are wrapping up this conversation about the Model I framework and the habits and the Henry Ford's approach to um, making innovation accessible you went back to the research base that informs it, Lucy. And I love the way that the both of you kind of weave that narrative, the potentials in all of us, but the ability to ex- access innovation, the tools, the frameworks, the stories. It's the Henry Ford's mission as a curator of artifacts that that can tell these stories to use the stories to create scaffolds that uh, can come alongside uh, our natural inclination towards innovation. But as you ended there, like uh, Phil's talking about, we couldn't have done it without the teachers. And Lucy's, it's not just Phil and I, it seems to me like an essential part of innovation is inclusion. When we're human-centered and we embrace ideas from diverse places and anyone who touches uh, touches the thing, that's what drives, uh, that's a, I won't say it's the only thing, but it's a, it's a critical cog in the, the innovative machine, so to speak, if I, if I can take liberty in, in describing it that way. Yeah, I'm going to, um, we, we talked about favorite places. Uh, you know, I said that shifts and change over time. One of my favorite places is Edison's lab in Greenfield Village. And Lots of people think that, you know, the really amazing thing that Edison did was create the light bulb and the entire infrastructure that is kind of our electrical world that we live in today. And yes, that's absolutely an amazing feat. But I always think that the really cool, the really amazing thing about Thomas Edison was that he understood the power of bringing people together to a single location, each of which have their own unique um, set of skills um, and putting them in a a space and having them together working on uh, research or working on ideas and problem solving because that's actually what Edison's lab is all about. It, It wasn't Thomas Edison who was just going there on his own every day to work on problems. There was an entire research team Um, And he respected each member of that team at the same level, right? Whether, I think he had like an expert carpenter as part of the team, right? Um, As well as uh, people who were sort of at the edge of physics understanding, you know, all of those mixed together in in one space. 
it would have been great if there were more women, but you know, I'm just going to step back from that and say it was of the time. But think about the power of having uh, understanding the importance of having multiple minds with multiple expertise and skills working together. That's actually what generated the number of inventions that Thomas Anderson was able to create and build because he had this whole group of people uh, working together in that space. That to me is the real genius of Thomas Edison. Um, and I, I guess that's something I think about all the time as an educator. Like how do we create those spaces um, for students, but also adults to, to really um, spark off one another. Um, you can't create a spark on its own. Like if you've just got one stick and you try and create a spark, it doesn't do anything. You, you need two or, or, you know, three things to really get that fire burning. And, and that's something for me, I think we, we lose sometimes in the stories that we tell um, in this space, just that team aspect. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that's true of that too is, um, you know, the, one of our learning principles is, is powered by, by perspective. And, and to Lucy's point too, it's, it's everybody comes at things from their own perspective. Uh, and that doesn't make anybody right or wrong, any more right or any more wrong than the next person. But it, it kind of takes that, that melding of those perspectives to, to, to create something that, that is a little bit more, um, you know, workable. You think about, uh, Edison, you know, he's bringing in people strategically because he himself doesn't have this knowledge himself. So he is seeking out those experts too. And, and I think that that's something that, that we think about often in, in the people that we work with and why we bring people from the outside too, because you can't always just kind of think in your, in your own bubble. Uh, so that habit of collaborate doesn't mean just, hey, everybody, let's just hang out and work together and it's all great. Collaboration can be really hard. You know, there's a lot of challenging the rules and taking risks when you when you bring in other people too to collaborate. So uh, it, it's something that that we think about often, I, I think, in our in our daily daily lives, for sure. And uh, Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Henry Ford had this uh, philosophy as well that um, really powerful innovation can only really take place in a democracy in a space that where there's freedom, which is sort of why the facade of the museum is, is what it is, because it really uh, reflects the importance in, of his mind of um, having kind of that democratic um, approach to innovation. Yeah. That's right, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So, Phil, you mentioned your daily lives. I'm very curious to hear about what all of these approaches, philosophies, um, those things look like in practice. So, what does the the work of the LNE team look like um, as it's applied? Yeah, great question. We kind of have four engagement approaches that that we sort of uh, base our work around. One of them is curriculum and learning resources. So, we are we are often creating units, lesson plans resources and tools really for uh, right now we're really focused on the educator themselves so we're creating these 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 resources um, that use our artifacts um, as it aligns to 
you know, state and national standards uh, to, to really start bringing artifacts into the classroom, as well as bringing in this idea of project-based learning and, and learning by doing as well. Um, and so those curriculum resources can, can take a couple different shapes. Really, we're trying to create them so that uh, under the assumption that there are some people who will never be able to actually come experience the Henry Ford in person. Uh, and so how do we how do we create uh, lesson plans and curriculum where we can sort of create some experience, whether it's virtual through video, the video assets and the video clips that we have or sort of analyzing or taking some really close looks at the, dig the digitized artifacts. Um, so that's one, one approach that we take to connect with educators. Uh, the other one is professional development. So we do professional development workshops. In fact, we, we just finished the pilot for our first taking our professional development and putting it into an online course format. And so that worked out really well. <laughs> we, we actually, in the midst of a already chaotic school year. We had about 15 educators from across the country um, that helped pilot a, uh, our first online course that really takes you through. It's, it's really all about using the Model I framework to turn the educator into an innovator where they are considering the needs of their students rather than, hey, here's a bunch of resources. Now you know about them, use them. Um, we've actually designed professional development in a way that includes a lot of reflecting time, a lot of networking and connecting and, and conversation with uh, their colleagues that are in the course with them so that they can learn from each other and feedback on each other. Um, and then the other one is, is at the end of our professional, this professional development course, you actually leave with an implementation plan. So, you, you know, if, if you think about some of the ways that people get professional development, they, they sit in a room and they, uh, they hear all these great things and then they leave and they have to say, well, how, how the heck am I going to, now I got to figure out how to do all this. Uh, we kind of want to build the teachers up, the educators up so that they are already prepared to take it back to their classroom, to their school uh, with a plan in hand, um, rather than sort of just leaving them to their own devices. Um, because we found that giving educators time above all else, uh, it actually creates a really fantastic professional development experience because that's something they don't always have. Uh, so professional development, um, along with uh, up and coming sort of uh, hosting webinars and work, uh, uh, virtual workshops uh, is something that we're, we're, we're working on right now. Uh, and then the uh, uh, one of the other ones is experiences. Uh, so if you think about in-person field trips, uh, which aren't really happening right now, but typically in a calendar year, we have about um, 200,000 school children that actually come to whether it's the museum or the village or any of the other venues across the board. Um, and so uh, working and partnering with schools uh, like DPSCD, Detroit Public Schools Community District, when they had their cultural passport program, we supported sort of their curriculum and their objectives with an on-site visit um, for their fourth and fifth graders. But right now, really, a lot of what experiences looks like is we're trying to figure out how to do virtual field trips. Uh, but but we're trying to figure out how to do virtual field trips in a way that's flexible because we know that meeting times on Zoom and all those things sometimes happen in 15-minute increments, 30-minute increments, 45-minute increments. Like, it's all over the board. So how do you engage with 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 a classroom? And and so we're, we're trying to design a very flexible, adaptable uh, virtual field trip experience. And, and we've started putting some things out there, um, which will come out more in 2021. And 
I think with with everything with our journey, this engagement approach of, of a virtual field trip isn't just for this point in time. Again, if we want people to access our collection more broadly, you know, that teacher in California that's engaging with us probably can't afford to bring their students to the Henry Ford. So we want to find a way to bring the Henry Ford to them. And then that, the last engagement approach is, is communities. So we have a couple of different communities that we work with. Um, one of those communities right now is attached to, to uh, a pretty prominent program that we have called Invention Convention Worldwide. Uh, so Invention Convention is essentially um, it is a whole program that encompasses curriculum, professional development. It, it's building invention skills um, and it leads into a competition. Think of kind of what a science fair looks like where students have display boards and they're standing by them. Uh, but instead of demonstrating a scientific concept, Invention Convention is a student is actually identifying a problem in their own life. Uh, what they are doing is they are creating a solution and an invention that solves that problem. And so uh, Invention Convention is a program across the country, and it actually has expanded globally. Um, and it's a community and a network that, that we are very much take an active role in. And Lucy, uh, as I'm talking about Invention Convention worldwide, do you want to give some some numbers to sort of how big that community is? Yeah. Um, so we kind of work with um, what we call affiliates. So these are people who are actually um, running regionally based or state based competitions um, where the, the kids showcase um, and then can qualify for U.S. nationals. And that's the piece that we host. Um, in fact, we're also one of the regional uh, competition owners. So we we run them uh, Invention Convention Michigan um, here as well. And we, we currently have um, around, uh, I wouldn't say 30 affiliates. Um, the majority of them are from across the country. Um, that number is growing. That's why I can't give you an exact number because we are actually gaining um, new affiliates. Um, we, we've gained a number down in Florida um, just over the last few months, which is really cool. And then we also have, we work with around like five to eight international affiliates as well. So I am, um, and we're looking to actually host a globals competition um, this this coming year. So we're just in discussions with each of the nationals affiliates as to what that globals experience would be, especially given where we're at within the COVID-19 crisis. We're learning different countries are at different places with that. So uh, whatever event we put together needs to accommodate kind of for multiple needs. Uh, numbers on actual students participating, I'm always a bit cautious about that um, because levels of participation um, are different in different places. So is it they're actually experiencing the competition or is it they're doing an invention education experience in their classroom? But right now we're tracking at about 120,000 students reached worldwide. Um, we think with the we've as i said a number of affiliates are joining us um and we'll see i think we'll see that number go up um over this next year uh, what we are also noticing this year with invention convention is um teachers who've been part of the program for many many years are this year some of them are taking a pause because of their classroom you know it's just it's it's just a different environment. Um, everybody's kind of working really hard to, to meet students' needs right now. So our job is just to be there to support them 
um, and kind of when they're looking to to get their students innovating and inventing we want to step in there and support them but also be cognizant of this time and, and space um, of we, we use the phrase um, think big uh, work smart grow wisely it's sort of um, a uh, basic philosophy and right now we're, we're really leaning into that grow wisely um, piece of it They'll, there's more to come on that I think um, Phil we should also like we should just share what the growth has been though even in Michigan uh, when we started the program three is it three years ago four years yeah so so along with sort of um, you know taking care of this this entire sort of affiliate network that's that's worldwide uh, we also are the home and headquarters essentially of, of Invention Convention Michigan, so the statewide competition. Uh, and we started that, as Lucy said, three years ago. And I want to say our, our, our participation, and this was across the entire, like the entire state of Michigan, we had a hunt, we had a hundred kids. Year, um, year which one. We in year one, which we actually, we, we think is really great for year one. We were thrilled with that and it, it was a great experience. And, just from year that year one from a hundred students across the state participating, we grew that to about fifth, I want to say it was about 1500 in year two. And so what we had to do was even though that hundred people in the first year were able to come to the Henry Ford and participate in the competition, bring their display boards, bring their inventions, pitch their ideas, be judged on it. I think we had about two, about 200 kids in year two come to the Henry Ford. Um, so across the state in classrooms, in in some of our different sort of regional, local competitions, uh, we have some partners in Central Michigan University, Eastern Michigan University, Kettering University, and some others. So in those places across the entire state, about 1,500 students, which, which was huge. Um, and so we're, we're, we're continuing to grow from there. And the last year was kind of interesting because obviously the we had to basically pivot, everyone's kind of favorite pandemic word, pivot, um, our in-person competitions to online. Um, and so, and so this year, you know, we we're planning to do those online, but it has been interesting to Lucy's point of, uh, the game slightly changed of how, how do you take this type of learning that's typically inside of a classroom and now give teachers and educators, um, supports to, to run it virtually. The, the great thing about invention convention though, is that, it is very much a student-driven, project-based learning. Um, and so it's really up to the student to put on their inventor hat and become that inventor. As I said, all the way from, they actually have to identify this problem themselves. A teacher isn't saying, hey, I want all of you to solve this. They're actually coming up with something unique and it's pretty incredible. The other beauty about invention convention is to see the outcome of that. So you have some kids that are solving problems that are near and dear to them because it might be related to a family member specifically. And then you have some other kids who are trying to- Or their pets. We always get, we pets, get a lot pets, of pet feeder. Um, and interestingly enough, that one seems to bridge cultural boundaries. So uh, yeah. I went to an invention convention in China last year. You, there was the pet feeder invention um, there, just like there was the pet feeder invention in Singapore, just like there's the pet feeder invention in the U.S. Nationals. 
and there also exists in the the, the Mexican um, one too. So this seems to be something that apparently um, other of my colleagues say the same thing. You will always find the pet feeder solution that kids are obviously struggling with how to feed their pets on a regular basis. Sorry, I yeah, Phil. No, that, no. Pet, I mean, pets. You know, we we have to we have to make sure that we include that too. Actually, one of my favorite inventions was was a pet invention where. Uh, uh, this this kid, he the problem that he was trying to solve was his bunny's cage was outside. Who doesn't love bunnies, right? So cute. Um, was out was outside, and the water kept freezing in in the area that they kept it outside. And so they'd always have to go out and change the water constantly because you know the bunny can't get the water out of the bottle if it's frozen. So he de- he he developed this device that he could attach to the bunny cage that would actually keep the water heated to a certain level. So that it would it would never freeze, um, and the bunny could always get his water. And so you have things like that, and then you have what one of our winners of Michigan Invention Convention created was actually a a software program um, that was uh, basically could could begin to more easily identify certain cancer cells. And so you've got you've got this wide range of of creativity coming from all different levels you know this isn't just high schoolers this is middle schoolers this is elementary school students even as i, I want to say we've gone as young as what kindergarten too mm-hmm. lucy yeah um they don't come on site for u.s nationals competitions but there is still a kindergarten category um the youngest we have actually com- compete in person when we're able to do that is um second graders and that's that's really, it's really lovely to watch them like explain their inventions and actually pitch. Uh, you know, can you imagine a, a second grader pitching their invention surrounded by hundreds of people um, listening in? And I would say that group always get a lot of attention because they are, you know, they are little and um, and have got some really cool things to, to share out. I, I can just share from personal experience, having been a judge at both the Michigan State uh, Invention Convention and the National Convention, it is an awesome event to behold. And so we'll we'll share with our audience links to information about that. I would highly encourage post-pandemic uh, folks to get involved with the convention uh, to the extent that they can. Yeah. Thanks. And, and, and so, Justin, that, that is the long answer <laughs> to, to your question of sort of what what the work looks like. Uh it's there's a lot of work <laughs> that 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 is done um but it's it it's always it's always a lot of fun and rewarding when when um you get the chance to actually see not just you know teachers taking whether it's the curriculum whether it's in getting students involved in invention convention or you know seeing teachers go through the professional development i think i think the aha moment that i i have in all of this is actually when educators take our things and use them in ways that that I don't think we ever necessarily thought was not necessarily possible, but just in a totally different way. And so it's fun to do this work, not just to serve this audience, but then to see how they take it to that that sort of next level and, and sort of become, you know, be the, that innovative thinker and, and, and adapt it and use it in a different way that was never really intended to be used in, in the first place. I, I think for me, what's, um, what's been really fun, especially 
over the last couple of years is is watching some of the things that we were developing and talking about actually being taken up by people. And, um, you know, this year we were able to release as part of our virtual summer series um, some of the curriculum, the, the Innovate curriculum that we had, and we were able to use some foundation funding to release it for free given this COVID pandemic and have kids use it um, at home. And that uh, curriculum is really designed as an online um, curriculum that you that students engage in directly. So it, it really kind of fitted for this moment. But I was looking at some um, of the data that was coming in. So we had about 2000 people kind of download that and use that this um, back in June and July, they're still using it. Um, but for me, what's coming back to that whole thing about going beyond our boundaries and reaching beyond, basically, that curriculum is now being used in six continents. So it's across six continents. It's in 52 countries and it's all in all 50 states. So, you know, we set the vision of like, how do we get our stories out beyond our boundaries and in people's lives and in people's homes and in people's classrooms? And there's just one example of that coming to life. And we can actually see the data that's showing that stories from our collection, people are engaging with across the world, which is kind of puts the hairs on the back of your neck up on end. I mean, it's just, it, it's really, really exciting to kind of be at the edge of. That's great. You, you were already kind of jumping into my kind of final question, but my question really is, you know, if you were to be dropped into a, maybe say a non-pandemic setting, a classroom or a school setting, what would you see that would let you know that your work is having an impact? And then when you see that, like, how do you think about the next step in your work? What are you learning from the impact of your work that helps you drive forward? Oh, that's a really good question. But I, so I'm going to, I have been a teacher um, and I've also been an administrator in a, uh, of, of classrooms. And I'm, so I'm going to speak from that standpoint. Um, oftentimes when you, a classroom, a, a teacher is being kind of assessed on what's happening in their classroom we look to see that that kids are sat in seats and that they're doing their work from textbooks and that they're quiet and that they're focused and that they're uh, you know th th there's all these kind of images in our head that we have of what is a good controlled classroom where learning is happening right um i would love to see that being broken slightly uh, you can have classroom control, but you can have it where students are actually up, moving around, talking to each other, working on a problem, um, having their hands on things, where the, where the teacher um, is facilitating the experience, but not controlling the entire learning journey. Um, and that the students actually have the space to learn from one another um, to lean into their teacher when they need that expertise. And the teacher feels confident and free um, to be able to let that let those students take the learning in the direction um, that that they want to. It's a it's a real art. Um, I've had the privilege of working with a you know a number of teachers over my over my career who who just do that really, really well. And for me, the richness of the learning that the kids have is just so much greater. So, you know, that's when I would know some of our work is really having an impact that we've, we've not just created um, 
a change in kind of the teaching and learning, but we've actually shifted the mindset of people in and around education, whether it's parents, whether it's administrators, whether it's the teachers themselves, that learning, really good learning should be a little bit more um, messy than perhaps that we we allow it to be. I mean, that comes back to that idea of innovation. Innovation is messy. Yeah, and so the framework is designed to kind of help control some of that messiness, but you want to give some freedom in that space. You want to let, uh, you know, uh, we talk about learn from failure is probably one of my favorite um, habits because honestly, we're often very afraid of the word failure in our society. We're, um, Kids are w afraid of the word, you know, failing. Teachers are afraid of their letting their kids fail. Um, and I think it's hugely important that you allow um, all of us to take risks, to learn from those failures, to, to, to challenge rules in ways that we haven't. I think that's when we move forward. And so for me, that's, uh, that's the kind of classroom I would love to walk past and see. And not just one, I would love to walk past all of them. Um, that are like that. Uh, uh, everything Lucy said. Um, <laughs> uh, I, th I think the only thing I would add is just a, a really quick, like specific story uh, that I think encompasses what I think the power of what we're doing can do. And this was probably about five or six, six, seven years ago at this point. Um, we took uh, we took the curriculum. We were just kind of was pretty brand new, our innovation curriculum. And and we applied it in a two week long summer camp program with uh, with some of the ninth grade students uh, at Henry Ford Academy. So Henry Ford Academy is the public charter school that's actually on the campus of the Henry Ford. I can't remember how many students was in there, but there was one student in particular. His name was Cortez. And he started out the, the program where he talked the least. He never raised his hand or said anything, didn't really work with the other students um, in, in the camp program, was really quiet and reserved. And as the those two weeks went on, he began to smile more. He began to talk more. He found he found common ground and, and ways to connect with, with the other students in the program. And, and he just began to open up. And I think if we're saying that innovation is is for everybody, you know, my hope is that I think success also looks like we instill a level of confidence in in students where, you know, maybe or maybe not, they, they definitely believe them to be innovative, but I think that they believe that they have the potential to contribute, to be a part of whatever it is they're doing and open up to know that it, you know, learning and, and school or camp, whatever, wherever the learn, learning setting is, is a safe space where they can, they can put themselves out there. Um, because there's an understanding that people come bring different ideas to the table and every idea is sort of respected and considered. I, I think in order to be, to use our framework and to be innovative, I, I think there does need to be an understanding that that everybody has a voice in this. And so I think about Cortez all the time as, as you know, that we're not gonna hit that 10 out of 10 times, but that's something that's always stayed with me and, and, and sort of speaks to the power of what I think success of the things that we're doing looks like is is sort of that confidence building piece. Hey, hey Phil, do you mind if students. I, can I share one of my stories? Uh, uh, really super quick. 
Phil was talking about an individual student. I'm going to talk about an uh, individual teacher was running a, a professional development experience that was really kind of embedding these ideas with a group of teachers. And I had a, interestingly enough, I had a, a small group of high school chemistry teachers who, uh, and one particularly who was really kind of fighting uh, the professional development experience and, and what we were, I guess, what we were sharing and, and setting up. It was actually a year long experience. So we worked, uh, we worked with, them, uh, with her to bring a kind of innovation learning piece to her chemistry um, classroom. And she really did resist the entire way. And at the end of the year, once she'd piloted it and with everyone else, we came out and did a feedback session. And um, I, you know, I said, so how did it go? What, you know, uh, what was your experience? What do you want to share as part of a reflection? And she put her hand up and I and I kind of nearly buried my head in my hands because I kind of knew what was coming. There was going to be all of this. Like it was, you know, it, it never worked, et cetera. And um, but I, I called on her and she said, um, so I, this revolutionized my classroom. And I sort of said, so tell me more. And she said, the biggest thing that happened was the kids that used to get A's really struggled with this kind of um, open-ended type of work. And I actually started to see, you know, some of their weaknesses. And the students who were getting Ds really excelled. And what happened was there wasn't just a shift in um, learning. It shifted the culture. Those A-grade students who used to kind of look slightly down on the D-grade students completely shifted their thinking. And there was this level of respect that happened in the classroom. So it wasn't just the learning that took place, the, there was a culture shift in the entire team. So she got to the end of her explanation. I will tell you, tears did appear in my eyes. I, I you know, because like, that's that's what you do this stuff for, is to, it. you want to change learning, you want to change the future, but when you have an impact on culture and how people think about one another, that's gold to me. Gold. That's a fantastic story to finish this off with. I want to thank you both. Um, what a what an incredible what an incredible journey you've been on and and continue to be on. And uh, true to form, it's it's never over. It just keeps keeps iterating, right? So, uh, thanks for blessing us with your time. An absolute absolute gift to be able to talk to Phil and Lucy and. Um, um, you know, best of best of luck navigating the immediate future with all uh, all the things that are going on and beyond. Thank you. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you both, and we hope to see you again. Yeah, sooner than later. Right back at you. Absolutely, yes. Hey everyone, welcome to the Unpack. I have Justin with me. Uh, as always, and joining us today is Nikki Herda, the content editor and creator with Michigan Virtual. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Jeff. Nikki's going to help us to unpack the episode. Nikki, as the outside observer to this to this conversation with the Henry Ford, Phil, and Lucy. We'll start with you. Uh, was there anything in particular that you think we should unpack a little further? Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite parts of this interview was hearing, uh, I believe it was Lucy's perspective on the innately innovative capacity of human beings and 
the uh, the Henry Ford's desire to close the innovation gap. Um, there is a quote that she said, everybody has the ability to innovate in them. Human beings are just innately innovative, especially in difficult situations. But the opportunity to showcase that is clustered in places, various places, especially within the U.S. So the question becomes, how do we reduce that innovation gap? Um, and part of their drive was to take the stories at the Henry Ford um, and use the the past to seed the future um, and develop a framework to help people think through problem solving. And so I guess I'm curious to hear what, what you guys thought about that and what your reactions were to that. When Lucy was talking about that, she, 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 um, she talked about the study, the, um, the lost Einsteins is what she referred to it as. And then I tracked that back to a, the, the project, um, and it's titled who becomes an innovator in America, the importance of exposure to innovation. And I, I found it deeply fascinating, um, about how like it, it, it people that have, access as children to innovative people, to innovators. Like it's very much a, 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 um, a, a people connection thing. Um, you could look at the map and see that, you know, around the, um, uh, around the areas where it, there's a high, there's where there's high uh, volume of innovators per capita, it's, it's really high and where, where it's low, it's really, really low. There's not really an in-between or even uh, disbursement and like even more so digging into the demographic slices of it. Women who are innovators tend to be geographically co-located uh, near one another. And it's likely because one inspired the other this broadens out to a, a bigger conversation within our society of representation and, and the significance of representation. But here we have a study that points to this, particularly in light of innovation. Uh, and I, and I find, um, you know, something I keep coming back to is that innovation is a powerful vehicle uh, for inclusion and actually is driven by inclusion. You know, Phil and Lucy were talking about Einstein's workshop and the idea of bringing people together so that you could, um, you could have all these great minds together. But it also takes place in a time in a society where not everyone was able to just be in there based upon the merit of their brains. And so we've got these, these tug and pull tensions that have existed um, for a while, but like the less requirements we have to bring people together that have the capability to innovate, which this study points to is innate in all of us. It seems to be one of the, the biggest drivers of innovation is, is pure unadulterated inclusion. Uh, and I find that to be a really compelling and powerful takeaway and, and gives purpose to their work and, and to our work really. I'll, I'll just add that like having worked with Phil and Lucy for a few years now and kind of knowing what their work um, is 
it was really refreshing to kind of step back and have a conversation with them about the bigger picture and like the, 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 the pure mission and ideology behind their work to understand what's driving it. Um, and, and I think it's, it's kind of a, a characteristic or an attribute of the organization which they work for, they're so good at telling stories and painting the picture behind um, the ideas that they're that they're trying to get across, right? And so you understand what their work is in practice, training teachers, developing curriculum, uh, but they really do such a good job of um, uh, articulating the why behind it and framing it in that that sense of closing the innovation gap and um demonstrating that that innovation is an innate capability like that helps us all buy into that vision um which i really appreciate the the young einstein's uh study too it reminds me of a, a book um that i actually got to interview the author of um julia freeland fisher uh, there's a book called who you know and it's basically kind of trying to um build on this social science research around strong ties and weak ties, making the argument that um, your strong ties are important, the people that you uh, have really close relationships with. And we know that those things obviously have an impact on your opportunity and the success you might experience later in life. But your weak ties, the people that you're introduced to through a broader network could have an even bigger impact on expanding your uh, sense of what's uh, possible, right? So she's making the case that schools should be doing a lot more to um, unlock innovations and introduce kids to what's possible by bringing in experts in their fields from different fields so they can understand how those folks um, are, what their thought process is through innovation and how they think about problems and how they tackle them. So they're, it's just, it, it brings it home. And so we are, we, we are avoiding what I think Lucy was describing in terms of these clusters and we're just broadening people's worldviews and we're broadening their understanding about uh, this really simple notion that everybody can innovate and everybody should be able to innovate. Um, it's just a matter of how we figure out how to structure our system in the best way to make those things a reality. And I love the work that the Henry Ford does to, um, to make it a reality. I think uh, um, a quote there, Justin, from Phil, um, which is particularly powerful, is that resources can act like coaches and mentors. Mm. Uh, so this this thought of, yes, broadening the network and giving access to people like in the flesh is is very significant. But the way that he kind of talked about where the Henry Ford sits with this wealth of resources uh, and artifacts that are connected to these people that um, um, many of them no longer in the flesh with us, that these, these artifacts, these resources, the, the stories that they're able to tell with those, it sounds very similar. And I think it's why you brought it up of how these resources can act as those, those weak ties for learners even broaden it further because we're, we're defying the, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the sands of time, so to speak with, with these, with these great innovators of the past. Yeah. I think that's like, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to denigrate museums because I'm a history major and I love museums and I love like w w what, what they offer and, and what their missions are. But I think something that sets the Henry Ford apart and this team at the Henry Ford is that um, they have 
really figured out or they're figuring out how to leverage those resources for this like really big audacious mission of like literally making the world better through iteration um, by allowing folks to understand all the things in their resource hub uh, and how they came about. And it's just the way that all of that ties together through that spectrum and the way that they kind of articulate that, I think is just um, really powerful. And I think it sets them apart from other learning organizations. Both of those were great insights. I'm wondering, you started to hint at this, Justin, but what do we need in education to help close this innovation gap? Like, how can we take, especially in the K-12 space, take it beyond just the Henry Ford and have accomplished this in our classrooms? I mean, I would say one of the big things that the Henry Ford's work would, I think, argue for is helping teachers understand the importance of it, helping teachers understand like how to, uh, how to nurture that in their students, helping teachers understand how to facilitate that work with their students. Um, so that I think is a huge part of it. It's, it's one component, right? Like if we're going to talk about the universal education for every kid in America. Like it's a big mission right. to have everybody buy into the same exact thing. But I think that's a big, that's a big part of it is just um, getting people on the same page and understanding that this could, this is one of the most critical things that could lead to the success of a society or to the success of a family or a student. Right. Um, so I think that's part of it. Absolutely. I was just thinking Recently, I, I feel like a big drive for innovation that we saw was with COVID-19. Um, and both in terms of, in a lot of ways, education, business, medicine. And Lucy mentioned that. She said, humans have an amazing capacity for innovation, especially in times of distress. And the push for the vaccines, I, I saw, I, I didn't read the full article, but there was something about you know, the teams behind the various vaccines. And there was a lot of diverse figures on those teams and just really celebrating that story too of how people came together across the globe to try to solve this problem as sufficiently as, efficiently as possible. Yeah, I, th I think crises like that make people... Um, they, they probably make people believe or at least want to believe that things don't have to be the way they are. Right. Like, yeah, because I think a lot of people in education who might despair over it, they're concerned that it's too big, it's unchangeable, like, or the changes that you can make or can impact are, are, are narrow or niche. Right. But when you have a crisis like that, it exposes a lot of things that probably should be changed. And then people start to shift their viewpoint about what is uh, possible, right? What, what what you could possibly do to, to change an entire system. So I think that's a, a great point, Nikki, is that like, I, I doubt many people want to come out of the COVID-19 pandemic and just want things to be exactly the way they were before. Right. Because a lot of the things that were um, uncomfortable about our education system are, have been exacerbated by this and they want to figure out how to make changes and go forward. So I think a, a lot of people will try to use this as a springboard for innovation. And I wonder how we could bring our students into that process. 
you know, and invite them into it rather than telling them, here's how we're going to change things. Yeah, I think it's critical for us to understand that and gain that perspective and figure out how we um, we facilitate the right ways of getting that feedback. Because I, I can certainly imagine a lot of kids right now feel like school is just happening at them, right? Like, um, and it's probably not through much fault of the teachers and the administrators who are faced with this crisis because they're all trying to figure it out as, as they go. Um, but it's a matter of, uh, us keeping student voice at the center, uh, of the innovation process going forward. I, I have lots of thoughts listening to the two of you, uh, think aloud. Um, I, I have more questions than I have answers to Nikki's, um, uh, question. And I think that that's by design, Nikki, um, I think it's really interesting to think about comparing the scientific community in the development uh, uh, behind um, a, a COVID-19 vaccine that hadn't existed uh, before March of 2020 mm-hmm. um, or even later, right? Before, I don't know, summer of 2020. And a school system, a K-12 system that sought to develop an online and blended learning model for the first time for um, for students that did not opt into those experiences. Um, a, a, a universal model for that. And I think the, the questions I have about that are, did, did the industries respond differently? And if they did respond differently to their their unique um, challenges, what might have been the the reasons why they responded differently? How how much do we know about the successes and failures of of both? Mm-hmm. Do we know any less about some of the failures than we do um, the other? Are, are both of them innovative spaces? Are either of them more innovative than the other in these circumstances? I think that, that in, in light of, you lifted one line from Lucy, one part of a line from Lucy that, that is really interesting when we, when we analyze it during times of like great what what is it distress or what what what's that's what the, i said i can't remember if okay. it's exactly what she said so like when we're pressed against the wall when we have something that is um universal universally a barrier um and it challenges us how much does it focus us in a singularity to work mm-hmm. together to be innovative and is that always true that all people will will respond with great innovative efforts in those moments I think maybe another interesting side of this that you made me consider right now and tying together the innovation that we saw happening in schools in industry in science through COVID-19 is 
maybe reflecting on Lucy's quote that everybody has a capacity for innovation and maybe there are smaller stories of innovation you know covid the the vaccine is a big one but how in homes across the country you know how did parents innovate when they were faced with having to you know teach their kids and work from home at the same time like what little stories of innovation did we see and what did students experience in that regard i don't know there's going to be a lot that comes out of, of all this. Right. And I mean, it's not the school's not going to look the same for everybody after COVID-19, just like the same way it didn't look the same way for everybody before COVID-19. But I think we are going to have a lot of stories that um, demonstrate people's like perseverance, their innate like sense of innovation, like Lucy's hinting at. And um I think the question for us, like the test for us is whether or not like we use it to make things better, like for, for as many people as possible. I guess like the comparison I set up isn't fair, right? Like mm -hmm. a, a vaccine is a universal necessity to try to manage living with, with COVID-19 in the population to return to some sense of normalcy and a new normal and, and, and get, society back on track. Equally, it's important that students keep learning. I get the sense that uh, the, the educational community isn't as um, singularly, have a single understanding of what that means um, to, to continue um, the, the K-12 system uh, during a pandemic. Um, for, for scientists, it, it is get shots in arms and start to see herd immunity, um, uh, lower the, the fatality rate of, of this disease. Um, and maybe it's because I'm in the educational community and I see the nuance, uh, in, in our response to this, um, uh, to this major problem, um, this, this major, uh, barrier that we have before us and major opportunity depending mm -hmm. on how how we frame it not to oversimplify it but i think that there are different ways of looking at this opportunity is this an opportunity to continue to learn in a minimally viable way to, to continue the system of uh, of public and pri just k-12 education um, to, to continue some sense of, of that so that we can come out the other side and return to uh, what, what, what K-12 learning is meant to be. Um, I think that that's a camp that like, like by any means necessary to just continue the ritual of school. Um, and I think that there's another camp that is saying, no, it is our charge to... Um, to present a different model of learning that is as good or better, that has um, that embraces the opportunity of the moment, and to me that feels more like the innovative spirit um, to to lean into the moment to create something that didn't uh, that that uh, um, that needs to exist in order for us to thrive. I think innovation is about thriving, not not surviving, mm -hmm. um, and. I don't, I think that one of um, the sh potential shortcomings of our ability to iterate quickly and rapidly 
might be that not all stakeholders can agree on what it means to respond to this challenge. But does that mean that innovation isn't taking place? I think I think classroom educators and administrators and districts independently are responding to this and are iterating on their own models. And that given time, maybe even beyond the the, the pandemic's uh, duration, that that we will see the results of um, uh, of individuals organically taking to what this challenge means and what it means to thrive under these conditions in facilitating learning for students. And even students themselves are needing to iterate on like, how, how do I make this meaningful for myself? I no longer have the, the standard uh, show up and be instantly plugged into a rich social network that, that comes along with, with our learning efforts. So what do I do, need to do to iterate on my design? Of, of what it means to be a, a person in school. And, um, you know, uh, I think I think these are good things to wonder about and to consider um, going forward. I wonder to bring it back to the Henry Ford and their mission about their habits of an innovator. Did I get that right? Yes. I wonder how the habits of an innovator might help all of us kind of think through this process in our own lives and in kind of reconstructing our world. I, I don't say this to be corny or because uh, the folks were on the call. I think about the Model I framework regularly in, in my work, uh, definitely. Um, but just in, my, in my, my life as well, I think it's a good way to take in information, um, to, uh, recognize, um, challenges and, and opportunities for improvement. And maybe the most important thing is that things aren't built overnight, that like things don't just become what they become without chipping away at them and, and seeing the continuity in our lived experiences. When you honor life as a process to be, to be iterated upon, I think for me, it makes, it makes, it makes it, <laughs> it makes a difference in my engagement with things on, on a day-to-day basis. It, it makes me, um, uh, when I'm cognizant of that, it, it, it makes me think about that children aren't raised. My children that live in my house aren't raised in a single day. Uh, they don't go from baby to college graduate. Uh, to homeowner, to all of these things in a, in a single moment. And that as a parent, iterating on my design of how I parent is, is something that I, I need to prototype things. I need to try them out. I need to get feedback. I need to, um, I need to take that feedback and I need, to, I need to make changes to my design and deploy it the next day. So I kid you not, while I might not directly like say, I'm going to refer to my Model I framework placard, um, it is something that is ingrained in me a little bit because I found that to be so useful in, and, and, and that's thanks to my knowing the Henry Ford and interacting with them over the course of time. It's become a, a valuable part of much of what I do. 
you know, before we wrap up, I feel like there's a big opportunity that we should not miss out on here. Um, the Innovator's Guide to Self-Improvement by Jeff Gerlach sounds like an, yes. an amazing, <laughs> Absolutely. amazing Amazon purchase in the f- near future. Mindfulness for innovators. Like we could, there's a, there, the, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. It's a powerful testament to even how these habits may be helpful for our students as well as they iterate on their lives. Hey, Nikki, thanks yeah. a lot for joining us. Uh, I thought it was a really good conversation and I Thank appreciate you your, your curiosity. Always. Hi, I'm Jeff from Michigan Virtual, and I'm here with Nikki, and we want to talk to you about a new podcast series called Bright. Nikki here is one of the big creative forces behind this exciting new project. And so, Nikki, I'm curious, what what can you tell us about Bright, and why are you excited about it? Yeah, thanks for asking, Jeff. I'm excited about Bright because uh, the subtitle of it is Stories of Hope and Innovation in Michigan Classrooms. And what we're really hoping to do here is to showcase Michigan teachers. So we're looking to talk to teachers who are doing outstanding work in their classrooms from all over our state, uh, from the UP to Detroit to the suburbs, teachers from all across the state. And we're looking to hear their stories. We think that Teachers have been the unsung heroes of this pandemic, and they've totally taken their classrooms and changed their approach for everything that they were used to doing. And they've tried new things, and they've failed and succeeded in different areas, and they felt the stress. And we think now more than ever, their stories deserve to be told that they have gone above and beyond to try to reach their students in a new format and we want to hear from them. So um, every week or two, I'm going to be interviewing uh, a teacher that is recommended to us or nominated by somebody in their district. And we're going to hear what they have to say about the future of education and what their experiences have been like for the past year and what they believe students need. We want to hear about where they think education is going We think we trust that they know what's best for for students, and we want to take those voices and uh, share them with you all. That sounds super exciting. I'm looking forward to to listening and uh, hearing these stories that that don't always get amplified like that. Like you said, um, they're teachers of the unsung heroes of of the pandemic and have kept a lot of things going. And uh, not just that, uh, have found opportunities to innovate within um, these difficult times. So thanks for the work you're doing and I'm looking forward to, to listening along and contributing where I can. Yeah, we hope we can get you on a, a couple episodes too, Jeff. I'm really looking forward to uh, being a part of this this new journey as much as, as we can and uh, uh, get to talk to some great educators out there. 